Just one time I want Chris to move this thing. Just once. Just one time is all I ask. Thank you, thank you. Um, all right, so we, are, uh, we started a new series about two weeks ago called Life Stories. Each leader is going to share a testimony, just how they came to faith. And we're asking each leader to use three words to describe their story. So we're going to hear that today. And so um, I get to share my story with you guys today. So um, I'm excited about that. Uh, I will say some of the stories you probably already heard in other sermons maybe, but we'll kind of tie them all together today. So uh, do you guys want to see uh, my baby picture? We should skip over that picture. All right, here we go. Oh, man, look at that. I was a fat, happy, look at those legs, man. Those are fat legs right there, man, serious. Um, so I was a fat, happy baby, and then... Um, if someone could turn off those lights up, those, those big lights, so you can see the screen better, a little bit better with the pictures and stuff. Uh, so I was the, um, I had two brothers. Now guess which one I was. Which one am I? I didn't say turn the lights off completely, man, if you want. The red shirt, right? So I'm the youngest of three boys, and so I got beat up a lot as a kid. And, uh, so when you're, when you're the youngest, you've got to be scrappy, man. You have to be scrappy. Be able to, like, put the punches in and then run really fast, run away. That's what you do when you're the youngest of three boys. So um, those are my brothers. Uh, believe it or not, Kevin's in the middle. And my big brother, who's like, he's like football player build, like masculine, manly. His name is Ashley. Go figure. I have no idea what that was about, but that's his name. And so, girly name, but a manly man. So, um, and then this is my brother and I on a horse. We had two horses when we were growing up. We grew up kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And then um, that's our family. A little blurry, but I'm there on the left, obviously, and a little more grown up. And then I debated if I should show you this next picture or not, but (laughs) this is a senior picture. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Man, that's embarrassing. So, uh, man, like, I couldn't even grow a beard. Like, baby face. I mean, look at that hair. You could surf that. Seriously. The 90s were cool until they weren't, you know? So, um, that's senior picture. And then I grew up in this little town called Catlett, Virginia. It's really close to Washington, D.C., but it's really in the middle of nowhere. It's really rural. In fact, this is a very common look of that area. It's beautiful, kind of horse country, farming area, stuff like that. So, um, but my town is weird. It's a really small, like, farming town in Virginia, Northern Virginia, and as you might see things like this, you will also see this random Buddhist temple in the middle of a cornfield. It's really crazy. Um, They built this many years ago. We're like, what is that? It's like this structure in the middle of this corn. We're like, what is that? And it was this massive Buddhist temple they're constructing, um, in my hometown. It's very strange, very random, very weird. But my grandfather owned this dairy farm, and we lived on the edge of that farm, and we could hunt, fish, anywhere we wanted. It was really free reign of the place. It was really cool as a kid. But as tranquil as all this was, I really had this, like, heart for the city. I loved the city. I was drawn more to the city rather than the country where I grew up. And so we're only an hour away from all of this, only an hour away from, like, the heart of Washington, D.C. And, uh, so this made for lots of really cool field trips as kids. Like whenever I, 
Whenever my kids go on field trips, I just make fun of them. I'm like, you went where? To the CAC? Again? <laughs> okay. I went to the Air and Space Museum when I was your age, you know, and uh, cool places like that. But um, really close to this part of, uh, of Washington, D.C. And then, um, so the, the way I did not become a, a hillbilly redneck was because I really had the best of all worlds. I grew up in the country, but I went to school in the suburbs, but then you're also only an hour away from the city, right? And so you really had the best of all worlds. The, the school or the church I grew up in was this church here um, in Manassas, Virginia. And right across the street from this church was a school, which was my school, and it was also a Christian school. So we kind of had this sheltered upbringing. We kind of lived in a Christian bubble. Um, so on this property, I spent literally six days a week at this property, the school and the church across the street. And this is where um, my faith was really beginning to be formed. Both of these places were a mess. Lots of politics and drama with the school and the church. This is where I was initially taught about Jesus and the gospel. And this brings us to my first word, fear. The common theme that runs through my life, even now sometimes, is fear. And when I was a kid, a small kid, I remember being scared of everything. Having two older brothers will do that to you. And I remember um, I had a fear of heights. My grandfather had these big um, silos on his farm, and uh, one was 70 feet tall, and I had a ladder all the way to the top. And my brother and cousin, my cousin who was younger than me, they would climb up there all the time and get on top and be like, hey, you should come on up. It's really fun up here. And I'd be like, uh, no, I'm good. <laughs> and I was scared of heights. I was terrified of heights as a kid. And then when I was um, in, like, at the beach or at the river or even at the pond, we could go swimming anywhere we wanted. We'd have a pool. We had creeks and rivers and ponds. But my brothers, I'd get in the water. My brothers would, like, hold me under the water, like, to tease me. I'm like, I'm going to die, and I'm kicking for life, right? And so that might be why I was terrified of water as a kid for a while. And so I just had these really sort of strange fears as a kid growing up, just fearful of certain things. And, um, and one of my, I really wanted to, um, to please and to be good. So one of those things was my parents explaining the gospel to me. And, and I remember I prayed the prayer of salvation, whatever that looks like, when I was four or five years old, because I didn't want to go to hell. Like I was terrified of hell. So I was like, I don't want to go to hell, so I'm going to pray this prayer. Like you said, told me to pray. And I really do think I had an understanding at that age, though, of sin, the need for salvation, the need for Jesus being my Savior. But I think my motive was more just out of fear uh, to come to know Christ. And even how I got baptized was rooted in this weird fear thing. And I was around seven or eight years old, and I think I was watching people in our church get baptized, and somehow I made this link with, if I don't get baptized then I might go to hell, and I don't want to go to hell. And so I was terrified of, of that, and so I was wanting to get baptized. And then what kind of pushed me over the edge was one night my brother and I were, um, were playing with watercolors, and he had the watercolor cup, the one that has all the dirty water in it, and he goes, hey, I dare you to drink that. And I was like, okay. So I drank it, and I thought, what if that was poisonous? And I was having these fears of, like, I'm just going to drop dead, like, in, in any minute. And I was, like, waiting. I didn't tell my parents and I'm not kidding. I didn't know how poison worked. So for like two or three days, I'm sitting in class in like second grade, just 
terrified I'm going to drop dead any moment. And so I finally go to my mom and I say, I need to tell you something and I'm really scared and I think I should get baptized. I don't want to go to hell. And she's like, what are you talking about? And I go, well, I drank this stuff and I think it's poisonous. And she's like, no, no, that's not poisonous. But let's talk about baptism. You don't get baptized to get saved. That's an act of obedience after you've become a Christian. So we go talk to the pastor and end up getting baptized at a fairly young age. But you can see how the, what, what was happening here was this theme of fear. Like everything was fear-based. And so the word that comes to mind as I think about my walk as a young kid is this word, scrupulous, defined as diligent, thorough, extremely attentive to details, very concerned to avoid doing wrong. It sounds a lot like how Chris described his story last week. Reminded of Paul's words in Philippians 3, he says, If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. This is really how I saw myself and what I thought I needed to be. And it was all fear-driven. And so Paul's looking back on his past before Christ, and Paul is this legalistic rule follower. And I was the kid who wanted to obey, who wanted to follow the rules. I really believe I was saved at this age, but my obedience was more of an effort to please God, to earn favor with God and others. And I was like a little Pharisee. I was kind of like Paul. I was a little Pharisee, really good at pointing out the sins of other people instead of looking at my own. I would point out their sins. And as I entered into junior high, this began to change a little bit. Even though I was outwardly obedient, I was becoming inwardly rebellious. And this is what I think can happen in a hyper-Christian environment. So I was in this hyper-Christian environment, church, Christian school, And I think what can happen, and listen, I'm not knocking anybody's school situation in here. I'm just telling you what can happen if you're not careful to your heart if you're in those kinds of environments. For me, this place became a breeding ground for my own self-righteousness and my own hypocrisy. I think parents and leaders have to do a really good job keeping their, their, their kids, their students understanding that what happens in your heart matters. It's not just outward obedience, but what happens inside your heart really, really matters. Because if you're not careful, these kinds of places can be breeding grounds for hypocrisy. And that's what it was for me. I heard my parents say things growing up that made us and the school that we had chosen sound morally superior to other people. And this can happen. We have to guard against this kind of mindset. And so even though my parents presented pretty well at church, at home there wasn't stability. Both of my parents, I think, are believers. But growing up, they did not have a healthy marriage. There was never any abuse. There was never bad language. There was never any thrown objects. But I can remember hearing my mom whimper and cry through the closed bedroom door. And so I internalized all of that 
and it fed my fears. It fed my fears as a kid. Are mom and dad going to be okay? Is this going to end up like some of my friends' parents have ended up? Are they going to be okay? There was never any threat. I never heard the word divorce, separation. There was never anything like that in my family growing up, but things were just not okay. In my home, I would describe it as there was this silent, quiet tension, just pretty continuously. And what can happen when a home doesn't feel stable is we turn to something that does feel stable. And for me, that was relationships. And I was not, I was not the kind of uh, young teen that just kind of dated around. I wasn't, as they say, a player. I was more of a loyal type person. I was more of a, um, if I like someone, I was like in it. I was fully committed, fully in the relationship. And so even in eighth grade, I started getting involved in this relationship with this girl in my class. And um, we started heading down the physical road. And I know it's sinful. I know it's wrong. This is not what I want to do. But I, I'm, I'm just caught up in this relationship. And this, things become an idol for me. And then that ends up ending. And I sort of, as we say, come back to Jesus and really want to, you know, rededicate my life, so to speak. That lasted about a year, year and a half, and now I'm in 10th grade, and the same thing happens. I get caught up with this girl who she's, says she's a Christian. I say I'm a Christian, but we start heading down the physical road again. And for 10 or 11 months, we dated, as they say, whatever that looks like in your, at, your, at that age. And what's crazy is I never made the connection that might it be that I'm looking, I'm looking for something that feels stable. And as tenuous as relationships can actually be in high school, to me it felt like some stability. It felt like some security. And so one of my worst fears was rejection. And so I even put up, this, the girl in 10th grade, um, I even put up with her cheating on me numerous times because I wanted to stay in the relationship. It was that dysfunctional, that messed up because I feared rejection. I feared rejection. So from eighth grade to sophomore year, I would have considered myself a strong Christian by those standards, but I was living in sin in these relationships. Even in the relationships, I kept score of how good I was. So all my close friends were dating people as well, and we'd talk about, you know, the question, how far is too far for a Christian to go physically in a relationship and all of us, of course, would say that, well, having sex is wrong. But who's to say everything leading up to that is not? We'd have that discussion. And my friends would say how far they think is okay. And I would say, and they would communicate how far they thought was okay. And I'd be like, what? You think that's okay? I'd be like, that's wrong. But meanwhile, I'm still doing things that are wrong. So it was like I was keeping score with my friends of, well, they're worse than me. Like, I'm just doing this. And so you can see how even in my sin, I'm, I'm still keeping score as to how good I am and how bad everyone else is. And this is the essence of hypocrisy. So my sophomore year, me and that girl, we end up ending things. The third cheating was too much. I was like, I'm done. And so I realized the depth of my sin and kind of how this thing had a hold on me. And it become an idol, the idols I'd created. And so it really wasn't until 
end of sophomore year that I realized my true need for forgiveness. I mean, of course, I knew intellectually that I need forgiveness. I mean, you're a Christian, you're in the church, you hear about that word all the time, that concept. But this might be an obvious word, obvious concept. I knew I needed it, but didn't realize how deep my sin was and how insidious my idols were. You see, there's this understanding sin at an intellectual level, but then there's the heart level. And so I hadn't, I hadn't quite grasped my sin debt and my need for forgiveness. I'm reminded of the story in Luke 18 where Jesus is telling a parable, and he says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I was like the Pharisee in that parable. I knew I needed grace intellectually, but not in my heart. There are two people that were in- instrumental in helping me understand the gospel in a more real way. This is a picture of my youth pastor and his wife. And Rob came to our church when I was around ninth grade. And uh, he was a new youth pastor at our church, and he spent time with us. He really reached out and did a great job reaching out to every person. We were a small church, reaching out to every person in our group. He would have us into his home. He would, um, we would have conversations. Like, he was a guy you could have fun with, but also have deep conversations with. And this is really when I began to see and experience community, but didn't know what to call it. So my friends and I would go to his house a lot. We'd spend a lot of time with him. He started taking us on mission trips. So I was a freshman. I went to Spain on a mission trip. Then it was England my sophomore year. And this is when I began to see the need for mission. We're having conversations with teenagers over in Europe where the gospel is just, I mean, the church is just dead. And there's like 3% of people in most of Europe even go to church or call themselves a Christian. And so we're in these like predominantly atheistic or agnostic, maybe they have Catholic as their, their tradition, but almost no one really believes it. And so we're talking to people on the street about our faith, other teenagers, and they're, and they're looking at us saying like, I don't believe that garbage. And we're talking to people over there in Europe about our faith. And I really began to see the need for mission as I went through high school on these mission trips. So even though I'm going to this school and attending this church, I also had jobs in high school where I was a part of, I, wasn't, I was no longer in the bubble. I was now in the world, so to speak, and I had jobs working at a fast food place, working at a golf course. And working jobs where I had lots of exposure to people where I could talk about Jesus and my faith. And that really began to challenge me. I'm no longer just in the Christian school bubble. I'm now working somewhere. I played on a select soccer team, and so I had guys there I was talking with some. And so I began to kind of share my faith with some of these people 
and have friendships with them, I began to see a real need for mission um, in my own life and also with the church. So fast forward to senior year, and I desperately wanted to play soccer. That was like my dream was to play soccer in college when I was just like my goal in life was to play soccer in college. And one of the schools I applied to put me on this waiting list because I didn't have the grades to get into that school. And I had to stay local my first year of college, and it was this devastating thing for me. And so somewhere between senior year and first year of college, I did another England mission trip. And on that trip was when I met this guy, this guy named Joe. And if you, you guys, of course, don't know him, but he is from Brooklyn, New York, but he ended up in Texas as a youth pastor. And I knew him from a previous England trip before, like two years prior, but so he's now in Texas and my youth pastor says, you want to go back to England again with this guy? And I said, yeah, sure. So we decide our, our group's going to join their group. So my group from Virginia joins the Texas group to go back to England again. And they're in Arlington, Texas there. At the end of the trip, i never forget it, we're in Washington Dulles Airport, and we're saying goodbye to that group. And he's about to walk onto the plane, and he just turns around and he goes, hey, Dave, uh, we've got this internship in Texas if you're ever interested, just give me a call. And he walks onto the plane. And I was just like, that was weird. And, and so I just didn't think much about it. And I started thinking, the next two weeks, I started thinking about, like, you know what? Like, I, I'm kind of stuck here for at least another year with school. I want to explore that. And so I went down the next Christmas to visit Arlington, Texas, and see the, the friends I'd made on that trip and check out the internship. And so the plan was to spend my sophomore year, possibly, a year in Texas, I would finish that year and then go back home somewhere and finish school on the East Coast. That was the plan. Well, I come to Texas that next summer to spend a year in Texas, and I told him, I said, Joe, I'm not ever going to go into full-time ministry. Like, I, I'll do the internship, but I, I don't feel called to ministry. He's like, that's fine. Just come and grow as a leader and grow as a person. I said, okay. So I come down. I was going to serve for one year. That was the plan. And then one year became two years. And two years became three years. And now I'm going to school, and now I'm in college. And I'm like, well, I'll just stay here and finish college here. And so that's what I did. But even at the end of graduation of college, I still was like, there is no way I am ever going into full-time vocational ministry. You got that, God? <laughs> that's what I was saying. And so I go off and get a job in my degree field, journalism after that, and I worked for about a year in my, some places in Dallas, and I hated it. It was awful. It was awful. And so I'm in this internship in my degree field in Dallas, and, and I get the news one day that I've been fired. I've been fired from a job that I studied four years to train for. And meanwhile, I'm still interning at this church as I'm working this other job. And this was the sign from God. Like, okay, God, this is not the career for me. Now what? And so for two or three weeks, I'm just praying and thinking and seeking counsel from other people and asking, what am I supposed to do? I have no idea what I'm going to do. And that's when friends began to say, well, Dave, I mean, you've been working with students for four years now, and you seem to like that. You seem to love that. And I was like, yeah, but if I, if I go into full-time ministry, then I'll become cynical and jaded, and I want to keep it, 
I want to keep it where it's just a volunteer thing or just I'm serving the church and I don't want to make it a job. That'll take all the fun out of it. And I had all these excuses as to why I couldn't. And they're like, well, I mean, have you thought about going to seminary? And I'm like, wait, more school? Are you kidding me? I just finished school. I'm not going to more school. And I had all these excuses. And so I began to think and pray, God, what's going to be next uh, for me? And I was listing off all the reasons why I would say no to seminary, no to ministry as a vocation, a full-time job. But then I began to realize all the reasons I'm giving, they're fear-based. Because it was things like, I don't want to do church drama. I don't want to do church politics. I've been in some bad churches. I don't want to be in a bad church. What about, you know, uh, public speaking? I don't want to do public speaking. That was not something I felt drawn to. And so all these things I was, excuses, were really fear-based excuses. And so over the course of that time, God began to stir in my heart this desire to go back to school for seminary. I knew it was from God because it wasn't for me. And I was reading Matthew 17 this one day where the disciples are trying to cast out to heal this demon-possessed boy, and Jesus steps in and heals him. The disciples come to him, and they say, I want you to turn there if you have your Bibles, Matthew 17, verses 19 and 20, because I want to show you something here real quick. Matthew 17, verse 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Now what is Jesus saying? In Jewish culture, moving a mountain was a metaphor, a picture of doing what seemed impossible. He's not saying literally, you're going to pick up a mountain and throw it into the sea. But they're putting their faith in themselves and not in him. And so the point he's trying to make, what matters isn't the size of your faith. Notice he's saying, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, like tiny, tiny, tiny. What matters isn't the size of your faith, but the object of your faith. That's the point he's trying to make here. Even small, tiny faith can bring about some amazing things. And then I notice something. I want you to look in your Bibles. You see verse 19. You see verse 20. Look at your Bible. What comes after verse 20? Say it to me. What number? Yours has 21? What's yours have? Okay, so some of your Bibles, it goes from 20 to 22. And some of yours has verse 21. Here's why. Because some of the earliest manuscripts didn't have verse 21. Okay? Some of your Bibles may have it in parentheses and say, like, that's a later manuscript. So my Bible doesn't include it as an actual verse. So the numbers skip. And I was reading, I was like, wait, the numbers skip. What happened? And I read this little note at the bottom. It says, some manuscripts insert this verse, but this kind never comes out except by prayer and fasting meaning the demon he's talking about with this healing this young boy. 
And I just happened to glance in the margin and say, this kind never comes out except by prayer and fasting. Remember we at Impact Camp, we talked about these kinds of things with manuscripts and stuff, acknowledging that, yeah, there are some little variations in manuscripts, but they don't change the, the, the real meaning of some of these stories. And so I happened to see this particular note in my Bible, verse 21, is like missing, but you read it, and here's what it says. And so what he's saying is, whenever you really want to hear from God or want God to move, like, maybe you should pray and fast. Fast and pray. And so I started thinking about my situation. I was like, you know, I'm going to actually going to fast and pray and pray and fast that God will show me kind of what to do here. And so I set aside a day to fast and pray. And I never fasted before. I never had skipped meals to pray. And I took my um, Bible out into this park and I decided to you know, kind of read and pray and journal and spend the whole day just spending time with God in that way. And I was asking for very specific things. I said, God, if I'm supposed to go to seminary, then I need you to provide a way for that to happen. I didn't have any money. My parents were going to pay for it. I need you to provide a way for this to happen. And so that's what I was praying for that day. Well, that afternoon... I go meet with the youth pastor to discuss kind of what my plans might be. And we're having this meeting, and he gets a phone call during the meeting. And it's this guy that he knows who owns a pool business. And he hangs the phone up, and he goes, hey, you should call that guy about a job. And so I called that guy that day. I end up landing that job that day, and that is the job that paid my way through seminary. So the day I fasted and prayed for a job, that was the day that a job basically fell in my lap to pay for school. And it was so cool because I can recall after the first year of working in that job, in addition to the church job, and I looked at my taxes and I totaled up the amount I had made in that year working part-time while going to school, basically totaled the amount that I would have made the first year at the job in Dallas, the job I got fired from. And so God provided. God was faithful, and God provided. And then, right before I started school again, I had to go back home to Virginia for this wedding. A friend of mine was getting married. And I am in the airport in Washington, D.C., walking to to get my luggage and there's this random American Airlines pilot who starts talking to me. I don't even know why he did, but he starts talking to me. And he finds out that I'm a Christian. He finds out that I'm about to go to seminary. Turns out he lived in the Dallas area and also was a Christian guy and had gone through some really hard things in his own life. And so God kind of used those things in his life to cause him to reach out to people in conversation in airports. And I happened to be one of those people that day. And... So we start talking, and he goes, well, hey, I live in Dallas. He goes to the, one of the churches, one of the big churches there in Dallas. He's a solid guy, and he says, hey, listen, if you ever want to grab lunch, here's my email address. And he walked off. And I just thought, that was weird. That was so strange. Why did that just happen? And I go home that day, and I just had this thought, like, I wonder if God's going to use something with that guy in your life in some way. And so I thought nothing of it. I think I even lost his email address, and like two months later, I find it again. I was like, you know, I'm going to give the guy a call. So I'm now attending school in Dallas, and we would meet for lunch every 
few months or so, a couple of months or so. And it just became like kind of this sort of distant mentoring thing where you'd meet and talk about God and the Bible and stuff like that. And so one day, he says, let's get together. And I said, well, my car's in the shop, so I can't come to where you're at. He goes, I'll come to where you are in Arlington. So he comes all the way to Arlington. He goes, where do you want to go? I was like, I don't know. Let's go over to this restaurant over here. So we go to this restaurant. And we walk in, we place our order, and we sit down, we start talking about the Bible. And we're just doing our normal routine. And now there's this really attractive girl working there. And she's cleaning up tables all around us. And she overhears our conversation, and she decides to join in. And then she apologizes. And she says, I'm sorry, I just love talking about the Bible. And I was like, don't apologize. What's your name and what's your number? And she said, my name is Courtney. And so about a month later, we start dating. And I wish I could say the rest is history, (laughs) but it's not. Four months later, she ends the relationship. I know. I try to get back. I try to get her back. I mean, I was, I was going to her car and, like, writing nice letters and putting flowers on her car in the middle of the night. It got creepy. It got creepy, man. And, and, and she was stubborn. Like, she would not repent. Like, she would not. And so, um, after a few months, she started attending a different church because it was just, yeah, awkward, Right? So she's going to different church, and I didn't see her at all. And I just really gave up. I was like, I give up. This is not going to work. This is getting weird anyway. And um, four months later, I go into this Chick-fil-A just to have, grab some food. And I see this old friend who used to attend the church that I was going to, working at. And he was now attending the church that she was now going to. And so he knew who she was. And he said, He's like, yeah, man, what's that girl's name? I told her her name. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I've been seeing her at church over and forth. I was like, yeah, yeah, I know she's going over there. And um, he said he'd seen her there. And then he goes, I think you should call her. And I was like, what? Did, did y'all talk about something? Did she say, did she mention me? And he's like, no, but I think you'd call. I said, why? And he goes, I think she still loves you. And then he walked out. And I was like, what? What just happened? And so I'm like, that's, that's, that's just whatever, you know. And so I sat out for about a week or so. But God began to work in my heart to call her back and be like, hey, you know, let's, let's go have dinner. And so I call her back, and she's like, yeah, we can have dinner. I was like, okay, cool. So we have dinner, and then the rest is history, okay? So that's how it all works out. You can snap for that, yes. So um, the next word I come to is this word, faithfulness. Not my faithfulness, this is God's faithfulness. Because I look back on all of that, I didn't know what to do when the school I wanted to get into rejected me, uh, but God was faithful. I didn't know what to do when fired from a job after college, but God was faithful. Didn't know how I'd pay for seminary, but God was faithful. And so I hope this encourages you. When God says no to something, he's saying yes to something else. But you're not going to know what he's saying yes to. At times he's saying, 
um, yes to things that make no sense to you. And I feel hypocritical for saying this because I still struggle with fear. It may not be the same things. It's just new things. I got kids. It's new things, trust me. For reasons I cannot get into, uh, 2018 to 2019 will go down as the most difficult year ever for me in ministry. In 22 years, this past year will go down as the most difficult year I've ever experienced in ministry. And so I still struggle with fear and anxiety. But here's where God's reminded me of in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul says this. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. What an amazing verse. You think about your struggles and where, where God, how God uses them to bring about his glory and honor in the midst of our weaknesses. When we struggle, it's a chance to lean further into his grace and his mercy. So I want to just close this one quote. Do what scares you. Don't let fear dictate what you will and won't do for Jesus. When you do things scared, it's a chance to show off his, his faithfulness. I want to read this letter to you because this is a letter. My mom gave this to me um, at my last birthday. She was here visiting, and she said, I have this thing I want to give you. And I said, what is it? And she said, this is a letter from your pastor when you were five days old. And I meant to give it to you when you were a teen, but I lost it, and I just found it. And so here at my age now, she's giving me this letter. And the funny thing is, they were going to name me Daniel. So that's like crossed out. And it says Dave. That's funny. And the pastor writes to me. He says, and I knew this man. He was a good man. He says, he says welcome to this wonderful, exciting world. As you quickly become adjusted to the beauty all around you and the joy of being cared for by your parents, you will appreciate what is happening to you. For months now, God has been preparing you for this rich experience called life. Even before that, he was providing a wonderful Christian home for you. How fortunate you are to have parents who deeply love God, each other, and you. This is a rare privilege. As you grow, you'll be affected deeply by and fervently appreciate such Christ-like love. God has made, listen to this, God has made available everything you need to grow physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. How I thrill at being able to watch all this and come to that day when you welcome into your life Jesus Christ, the historical Son of God, as your Savior and Lord. In the meanwhile, I look forward to being a friend and pastor to you. So God's made available all I've ever needed and all I will ever need does the same thing for each one of you. So, some discussion at your tables.